0: You would open your Bible with me to the epistolary reading, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll look at the first two verses of that chapter. I want to tell you a conversation I had with Batman about one year ago. Uh, there was a fan expo in that building right, oh, that building right there at, uh, uh, at City Hall. And there were people, or the convention center rather, and there were people there dressed as, you know, all sort of superheroes and Harry Potter, all sorts of different characters. And I was walking to get coffee at the Flying Horse Cafe, and I came across Batman and Wonder Woman and Spider-Man, basically a quorum of the Justice League. And I struck up a conversation with Batman. I said, I'm Dustin. And he responded, I'm Batman. Uh, The jokes are not going to get funnier. Budget your laughs accordingly. Uh, and I started talking to him about wearing a Batman costume, going to this sort of fan convention, and said something kind of profound that I remember now a year later. He was talking about going to these things, and he goes to a lot of them. He came, he's not from Dallas, he came to Dallas for this fan expo. He said conventions like this will have different kind of breakout sessions on various topics. He said, so like one may be like, special effects in movies. Another one may compare DC Comics versus Marvel Comics, all sorts of different ways one could use their time at a conference like this. And he said, you know, when you come, the first time you come to a fan expo, you kind of can waste your time because all of it is sort of mildly interesting. Like there's no session that you wouldn't want to be a part of but you miss out on the thing that you're most excited about. And so Batman said, uh, the key to really getting the most out of this is you really have to know yourself. And he kind of paused, and I thought about that, that to know yourself and who you are and who you want to be really does kind of guide how you budget your time, how you choose what to do, because we all have endless options before us. We can choose this, we can choose that, we can invest ourselves in all sorts of ways. And the way we invest ourselves, the way we invest our time, the way we choose what college to go to, who to date, what friends to have, what career we should pursue, is largely like Batman deciding to go to a DC breakout group rather than a Marvel group, is largely based on our identity. And in 1 Corinthians, interestingly, the Corinthian church has all sorts of sort of ethical problems. And Paul could rightfully say, you know, church at Corinth, you should not do this, you should do that. Like he could sort of tell them, you know, what rooms in the convention center of life they should go to, but he doesn't do that. Instead, in these first two verses of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul rather reorients their identity. He says, if you are shaped by the gospel, your choices, the way you invest your life, your time will sort of take care of itself. And so as we look at these first two verses, uh, I, likewise, I'm not gonna, you know, maybe you're used to churches kind of yelling at you for bad choices you've made in the week or, or maybe your life. And you think you're going to hear kind of someone berate you and say, you know, do better. But Paul is actually gonna say, if your identity is shaped by grace, everything else has a way of working itself out. Now, the problem is, and everybody's in this room, I'm just gonna assume, I'm sure there are people in here who wouldn't call themselves a Christian, I'm just gonna assume if you're in here, you either are a Christian or you're very open to the idea that, that, that Christianity is true. But, you know, we go through life with these different identities, and, you know, we're moms, we're dads, we're wealthy, we're uh, American, we're uh, all these different hats we could put on. We're electricians, we're business people, we're house parents, all these things. My guess is, well, everybody in this room is a Christian in the sense that, you know, you say, that's part of my identity. But what I wonder is if it's sort of the main part of your identity, right? Like when I met Batman, you know, it turns out he was really interested in special effects stuff. that's part of his identity, but the main part of his identity was being Batman. And what Paul wants us to have here is a gospel identity. How do you get that? How do you make the resurrection of Christ, which we just heard read for us, not just kind of a thing you believe, not just part of yourself, but your whole self. Well, Paul tells us, he says, remind yourself of past grace, rely on present grace, and run towards future grace. So look with me at the first little bit of verse one of 15. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. Now, before we go on, Paul is not about to teach the Corinthians anything, now there is a place for teaching in the Christian life, but Paul says, "I'm reminding you of that which you already received." So they don't need kind of didactic instruction. Now, their schismatism, their snobbery, their kind of clickishness is not the result of ignorance, it's a result of forgetfulness. And that, it just seems to me as I come to this, that's my problem too. Not that actually I have ignorance of what I ought to do in any given day or who God is. But I, as I read the Old Testament, and you read of Israel's great sin, Israel's great sin was what? It was forgetfulness, that God would save them. He would display his works mightily. And yet, they would forget. And so what does God do with Israel? Well, he sends prophets. There is teaching involved. But God orients Israel by use of time. He tells them to observe hours in the day to pray so that their hours are redeemed. He gives them a Sabbath weekly so that every seven days they are to reflect upon the rest God offers. He offers yearly celebrations like Passover, the Feast of Booths, all these different ways. And then the New Testament, Jesus fulfills sort of the ceremonial law of Israel. But he doesn't do away with this ordering of time. I mean, we preached through Acts not very long ago, and the apostles we see, it's just so implicit that they are still praying the hours, for example. And surely there's a difference between the Sabbath of the Old Covenant and the Lord's Day and the New. The principle is the same, that weekly we are to order our time. And maybe the great kind of charism of the Anglican tradition is this emphasis on time redemption. Philip always says that the church doesn't go through time. Time goes through the church, right? So in our prayer book, we're giving morning and evening prayer. And they're a way for us to mark the day. Uh, We're given a Eucharistic service, which we order our weeks with. Our week revolves around Sunday. Um, And then we have a church calendar, which gives shape to our year, and specifically around the life of Christ. Now, of course, there is like a catechetical function in this prayer book tradition. I mean, it does teach us something. But it's not, you know, you don't have to go through this rhythm very long before you know it, you know, You know what Christmas is about. You know what Easter is about. Our ordering of time is not just to teach us something, it's to remind us. So we view discipleship here at All Saints, not just as kind of like an assembly line where, you know, you get Christology one year and then you get spirit next year and then you get something else the next year and it sort of just doles out information that you need and then you kind of graduate and you're 42, and you're just ready for heaven. You got to kill some time before death. No. We have a year that cycles us through. Why? Because we need that which the Corinthians needed. We need to be reminded. And so, Paul says, if you want the gospel, not just to be a thing you believe, but your primary identity, the main hat, that governs your choices. You have to remind yourself often because it is your nature to forget. It's my nature to forget. Remind yourself of past grace. But second, he says, you have to rely upon present grace. Look again at verse fifth, uh, chapter 15, verse one. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, first part of verse two, and by which you are being saved. Now, you could imagine, as this letter is being read, that this present tense, that salvation is not only something that happened, but it is ongoing. You are, even now, being saved, that the Corinthians would have been shocked. I mean, just a few chapters earlier, so as the letter is being read to the Corinthian church, maybe four or five minutes earlier, they heard Paul in chapter six, verse 11 say, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. So they may have sat back and thought, well, it's done. I'm saved. I have my heaven ticket and it's over. But Paul wants them to know that salvation is not only something upon which you reflect in the past, your justification in which you're saved from the penalty of sin, but that you are even now being saved from the power of sin. We call this sanctification, that what Christ did in justification, setting you right with the Father, the Spirit in time and history in your own experiential life is bringing into reality. You can know a present salvation, not just from hell that awaits us one day, but you know what it's like. I know what it's like to live in hell now. That's what sin brings to us it's chaos, it's arduous, it's uncomfortable. And Paul says, You are being saved now, presently. You were being sanctified by the Spirit. And this sanctification is no less grace than our justification. I mean, it's still being saved presently, our killing of sin, our purification. That's grace too. Uh, over the weekend, I was rereading my, maybe my favorite book, uh, Pilgrim's Progress. And I was reading it as, it, as it was snowing. And you may know Pilgrim's Progress is kind of an allegory of the Christian life. And it's about a man named Christian, his wife, Christiana, and they're journeying from the city of destruction to the celestial city. And it's meant to represent sort of the pilgrimage that we all take from death to life. But in between death to life, there's the valley of the shadow of death. There's an enchanted ground that's always calling you to slumber and sleep and waste the days. Um, And there's this place in Pilgrim's Progress where Christian's given a dream. And in the dream, there's a man uh, pouring water on a fire and amazingly, as the man is pouring water on the fire, the fire grows and grows. And it's almost like the more water is added to the fire, the more the fire shoots up. And Christian uh, is given an interpretation of this dream. Spoiler alert, the person who gives him the interpretation is named Interpreter. Um, and he says, and Christian says, what's the meaning of this dream? An interpreter says, the man pouring water on the fire is Satan. And he's constantly wanting to put out our faith. And the fire represents faith. And his water represents, you know, temptation, hardship, all of these things that the devil uses to sort of distract us and, and make us lose that love we had at first, like the church at Ephesus. And he said, Tristan's kind of understanding all this, and he says, but why does the fire grow bigger and bigger and hotter and hotter? And interpreter took him around the back wall. The fire is against this brick wall. And behind the wall, there's a tunnel that leads to the fire, and there's a man with a pitcher of oil. And he is ever pouring oil down the tunnel that feeds to the fire. And interpreter said, that's Jesus. Jesus. He says, Jesus, as much water as Satan has, Jesus has more grace, and the grace is the oil, and that oil is just constantly replenishing the fire. And that's what your sanctification is, that Jesus is constantly pouring out his grace, not one day, not just in the past, but presently, so that you can have a redemption, you can have a release Now, here, in this hour, you can rely upon his present grace. How do we reorient our identity in the gospel? We remind ourselves of past grace. We rely upon present grace. Last point, we run toward future grace. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you unless you believe in vain. You see, the gospel, the salvation, which Paul is so passionate that you and I would know and experience, is not only from the penalty of sin, which is accomplished through Christ's work and justification, and it's not only through uh, sin's Power, the alleviation of sin's power in our life that compels us to choose wrong things, right? The Spirit's work in sanctification frees us from the power of sin, just as Christ's work frees us from the penalty of sin. But Paul points to a future day, a day in which every tear will be wiped from every eye, in which there will be no more weeping, in which death will be obliterated, in which we behold the face of the Father and we are cleansed totally and finally and wholly from the presence of sin. We call this glorification. And this glorification is held, Paul likes the imagery of prize. It's at the end. It's a goal that we set our eyes to, that we, you and I, can just as we are, Freed from sin in history 2,000 years ago, and are being set free presently by the Spirit, that we would know a final blessing, a beatific state. Now, elsewhere, Paul emphatically wants us to know that this perseverance, this kind of keeping at it, he says, keep going, hold fast to this gospel lest your faith, your journey, your sojourn be in vain. Paul knows that there's a temptation for us to think, okay, grace kind of gets us in the door, but if we want this prize, it will be based upon our sort of stick to itness. And so Paul tells the church at Philippi, be confident of this. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion. Or Jesus says that all of the sheep that are in my hand, no one, the enemy included, can snatch them from my hand so that we persevere, but that perseverance is the result, not of our grit or our determination or our sort of fortitude, but our perseverance To run the race well is a result of God's grace. It's like if a baby is being held by her mother and the baby grips the mom's shirt. So the baby's holding fast. The baby isn't letting go. And yet the confidence that baby has actually, even if in the baby's head somehow, she thinks to herself that she is holding the mom the only way her little hand is able to grip her mom's shirt is if the mom is holding her secure. That's where her confidence is. Our confidence is not in some sort of internal integrity and quality of personhood. Our confidence is in our location, it's our placement in Jesus' hands so that we remember past grace, we rely on present grace, and we run with confidence, holding fast, knowing that his grip is stronger than ours, that we hold on, not because we have sinned less, but because we've repented, because we, like Christian and Pilgrim's Progress, come to the narrow gate of salvation and ask this, may I now enter here Will he within open to sorry me, though I have been an undeserving rebel? Then shall I not fail to sing his lasting praise on high. Here is me, a poor sinner. We'll close with this. Um, There is, just like in Pilgrim's Progress, there's always an enemy before Christian. There is an enemy, and he lies to us because he doesn't want us to have union with God. Here's his biggest lie. The biggest lie of the enemy is that we are sort of at a fan convention and that each sort of option before us is equal and that you, you know, you're going to die one day and that you really don't matter that much and that everything's kind of meaningless and frivolous and that your choices now have no bearing eternally because you're just a human, and so I didn't. I only talked to the Batman for like a minute. But if I had have asked him about his life and his story, I bet there would be been a time in his life where he had the option between reading a comic book or reading you know something else like maybe a mystery novel, and he chose a comic book. And then there's probably a time where he had a choice between you know reading Marvel comics or reading DC comics, and he chose DC comics. Maybe there was a time where he got to choose between reading Superman or reading Batman, and he read Batman. He made just a million choices that led him to this moment of being here and dressed for the occasion and totally confident of who he was. Now, Satan wants you to believe that the decisions you'll make when you leave this room have no eternal consequence. But here's the truth. Though the enemy tells us that, what you and I do when we leave here, where we place ourselves in the arms of Christ or holding on to ourselves has eternal consequence. We're either walking away from our humanity, away from God into eternal darkness where there's weeping and much gnashing of teeth, or we're walking towards eternal light, towards love, towards our full self, towards God. And that path we choose now is eternal, and we will eternally be moving away from our humanity and God or towards our humanity and God. Now, thought Christian, what shall I do? Sometimes Christian had half a thought to go back to the city of destruction. Then again, he thought he might be halfway through the valley of the shadow of death. He remembered also that he had already vanquished many a danger, and that the danger of going back may be much worse than going forward. And so Christian resolved to go on. Yet the enemy seemed to come nearer and nearer. But when he would come, almost right at him, Christian would cry out with the most vehement voice, I will walk in the strength of the Lord. And so the enemy gave back, and he came no further. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.